Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible Week 36, and we are reading this week what are dated in the Daily Bible September 3 through 9, and or pages 1,130 to 1,164. So you're making great progress. Congratulations. A little review. Last week, we um, saw the very sad story of the fall of Jerusalem and the very sad story of our prophet Jeremiah, who ended up ending his life out in Egypt in exile, surrounded by paganism, and um, a very, very sad ending, actually, to his life. And then we began reading about Ezekiel's amazing visions, a vision of the return of the Jewish people to their land and this spiritual restoration, um, a vision of this mighty um, war between Gog from Magog and, and um, you know, his visions are so detailed and uh, really quite amazing. So this week, we're going to begin talking about his final vision, which was of the temple and what I call uh, the heavenly temple. But uh, it seems he was once again, in a way, taken to Jerusalem and shown this temple that didn't exist physically. So what was he seeing? And, um, you know, it's a a long portion of your reading this week is going to be its very detailed vision about all the elements of the temple. And I'm not going to take time to go through that. Um, you, you can read through it. And I, I will say that, you know, when our year is over, hopefully you're going to have a list of additional studies that you'd like to do. And one of them might be about the design of the temple. And in order to really study that, you have to go back and study the Garden of Eden and then the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple as it was given uh, to David to be built. And now this heavenly vision or this, this temple vision given to Ezekiel. And see how they are the same and where they might differ. Uh, most agree that the temple that Ezekiel saw is of a future era. You could call it a messianic era. Uh, you could call it the heavenly uh, temple. But I think that what we'll find is in all these situations, there is a basic design in heaven that all of these are based on, including the Garden of Eden. So it's a fascinating study, which we we just don't have the time to go into it. But it's something I would suggest that you put on a list. I want to go back and study this. Uh, there's just so much detail, so much meaning, and so many layers of meaning uh, in all of it. So with the end of this magnificent uh, and very detailed and very long vision 
that Ezekiel has of the temple is kind of the last we hear of Ezekiel. So this means two of our great prophets for this period um, are coming to the end of their ministries and maybe even the ends of their lives. And so this leaves us with Daniel. Now, Daniel uh, stays active in Babylon up through the beginning of Persia. So he's active for like 80 years. He was a young man when he was taken off to Babylon, but uh, he must have been a very old man when his life and his ministry finally came to an end. So this week we read the story in Daniel 3, famous story. There's no need for me to read it um, or even to uh, tell it. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, so many times his name is pronounced Abednego, but I think it's more properly probably Abednego. The three Hebrew sons who refused to bow down to the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had built. And uh, the decree had gone out that everyone was to bow to this image, but they refused to. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And what happens is that the king looks up and he says, I thought there were only three people we threw in the furnace. Why do I see four? Who is this fourth person? And we all know that it is the Lord in the form of a man. They're saving the children. Now, what is the significance of this story? Well, I'll point out that it could be, you know, this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar uh, built was actually built out of gold from the temple in Jerusalem. And it may have been from gold from other places, but more than likely he had carried off a lot of gold in all of his conquests. So he puts this golden image up that everyone is supposed to worship. And they refuse to. And the significance of this is that here for all these years, the children of Israel had bowed down and worshipped these pagan gods and these idols. And the prophets kept telling him, they're nothing. They're nothing. They've just been made by hands. Don't worship them. Turn to the Lord your God. And they refused to. And so here they are in exile. And the three Hebrew sons say, no, we will not bow down. And God rescues them. God didn't rescue the idolatrous nation. He let them go into exile. He let the city and the temple be destroyed. But he sure saved these three who refused to bow down. Now, uh, speaking of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bit of a a funny character. Uh, you know, we have two really interesting stories here uh, to prepare us for a third story. It seems like God was working on the heart of Nebuchadnezzar all these years for like over 40 years, starting with the story, the first story that we read in Daniel, how that Nebuchadnezzar had this very uh, disturbing dream. And he wanted someone who would not just interpret the dream, but they had to actually tell him what it was he had dreamt first. And he couldn't find anyone that could do such a thing except for Daniel. And it says that this really got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. 
and he gave honor to the God of Daniel because of it. Then our second story is one I just told about the three Hebrew boys, men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the golden idol, and as a result, they were thrown into the fire. And at the end of this, Nebuchadnezzar really uh, sees that it is the God of the Hebrews that had saved them, and he gives honor to this God. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar, he still polytheistic. So while he may honor the God of the Israelites, he's also still worshiping the other gods. And one of the biggest problems probably is just his own sense of pride. And he thinks that he's done all of this. He's the one that conquered all these lands. His pride is very, very high. And so God doesn't still let up on Nebuchadnezzar though, and he uses this and he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. We read about this in Daniel chapter 4, where God warns him, and then he brings on him insanity. And it says for a period of time that Nebuchadnezzar was like out acting like an animal, eating grass like the animals. God really humbled him. But in the end, the Lord raises him up. He restores everything to him. And this is the amazing uh, final words of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Wow, that's really an amazing story that the God of the Israelites had brought the king of Babylon, their captive, their captor, to his knees and had humbled him. And he proclaims here the greatness of that God. Now, this could be a far-fetched story, right? I mean, do we have any proof of any of this? Well, not much, but there is one find that might be a hint towards this story. And so there was a fragment of cuneiform text that was found in the, uh, you know, in the area of Babylon, and it suggests the possibility that Nebuchadnezzar had some problem that caused him to become disengaged from his responsibilities for a time, and that during that time, his son, Amalmarduk, was probably in control. But archaeologists or the scholars will tell you that the text is too uncertain. They're not really sure that they can draw that firm of a conclusion. But just the fact that there's a hint that this might actually have happened in history um, it's an amazing testimony to the God of the Israelites and um, to his willingness to reveal himself to anyone that has a heart to turn to him. And Nebuchadnezzar may have only turned in part, uh, but God sure got his attention. Then that brings us to really our final reading uh, for this week. We began now to read the book of Job, and I want to explain 
uh, why we're reading the book of Job uh, now. Most believe that Job was a real character, a real man that did exist, and that more than likely he lived back in the time of the patriarchs. And um, so why do we think he was a real man? Because this story seems a little like, like poetry, right? It's, it's a great story, <laughs> but it seems kind of set up. Um, but the reason we think he was a real man is because he is mentioned in James in the New Testament as though he was a real man. But also in Ezekiel 14, you know, the Lord through Jeremiah, when he's talking about the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem, he said, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, uh, they couldn't only save themselves. Um, in other words, they couldn't have saved the city. That's how far gone it was. Well, the fact that the Lord is referring to Job here as a real person really does indicate, yes, he was a real person. Now, why do we think that he lived in the time of the patriarchs? Is because there's just certain hints to the patriarch lifestyle in the book, and we read it in the very, very beginning. When it begins to describe Job, it introduces to you who Job is and how very wealthy he was. And it describes his wealth in terms of livestock and animals and servants and the size of his family. And this is the way uh, wealth was assessed in the time of the patriarchs. So that's why we think the setting for this story is a man from the patriarchal period. But the story was written down many years later. So when was it written? We don't know. There are some that think it may have been written down in the period of the exile where we are now in our reading because it helps to explain to the people the problem of suffering and where is God in the midst of our suffering? And that would really be a, a hot topic during the exile, don't you think? And so a lot think that maybe it was written during that time. And that's why our daily Bible places the book of Job here, that we're going to read it at this point in our chronology. And it does fit very well. It's a very apropos subject for the, the exile period, I will admit. But there are also those that believe the book was written much earlier by Moses. Why Moses? Well, there's a couple of things in the book that hint uh, to that time period of Moses and Joshua. But uh, in the opening, we see that Job lived in a place called Uz or Uz. And um, there may be different theories on this, but it's generally accepted that Uz was in the area near Edom, which today is in the south of Jordan at the northern edge of Saudi Arabia. So this is the area which was called Midian back in the Old Testament. If you remember, we talked about Moses married a Midianite woman and her father was Jethro and he was a Midianite and how that the Midianites were there in northern Saudi Arabia, but they also would travel into the Sinai area. So Uz seems to be right there at the northern edge of the Midian area. So therefore, when Moses was in Midian, 
he may have heard this story. It would have been a tradition amongst the people of that region about Job who had lived there many centuries earlier, um, but they had passed down the story verbally from generation to generation. Moses may have heard it. Moses may have eventually written it down. And, and one argument for why it might have been Moses would be because the fact that it made it into the canon, into the Bible to start with, that uh, if it had been written by Moses, then it was of the highest respect and therefore it continued to be carried along and it made itself into the Bible. So these are just theories. I just give this as sort of a setting of who we're talking about and where this story may have taken place and who might have written it down. The book of Job, uh, this week we're just going to start it. Next week is all Job. So I'm going to save a lot of this to talk about next week. Um, but Job has three parts. One part is just the opening two chapters that we would call the prologue. It's the setting up of the story. And then the largest section is from chapter 3 to chapter 42, verse 6. That's where all of this conversation and dialogue takes place. And then at the very end, the last few verses of the entire book are considered the epilogue. That's the conclusion. That's the end of the story. But most of the book is this dialogue between Job and his three friends. And then a fourth one shows up and then God himself speaks. So um, here, what you're going to be reading this week, just in chap chapters one and two, uh, we set up the story here where it's these angels of God go before the Lord, and then it says Satan goes before the Lord. Well, Satan here is actually, in Hebrew, would be called the Satan. So it was the, um, not accuser, but the uh, adversary. That's what the word Satan means. So it doesn't look like Satan is used here in this book as the title of a evil being. Uh, Satan means adversary, and so they're just saying that Job's adversary, the adversary, appeared before the Lord. And yes, it may be Satan, uh, but I'm just telling you linguistically, it's the adversary. And, um, and he goes before the Lord, and, and, and God himself says, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, we have then that this adversary is allowed to attack Job. And after Job loses um, so much, then he says this in chapter 2, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, that was the right response. And I'm sorry, that was not in chapter 2. That was still in chapter 1. That was the right response from Job's heart. He passed that test. But then... Uh, the accuser says, um, no, no, no. 
uh, sure, he's trusting you. We got to go deeper. And so Job goes through another round of loss. Once again, he has a right response. But then towards the end of chapter two is when his three friends enter the story. Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the good news is that for the first seven days that they're with Job, they don't say a word. They sit in silence. They're mourning with Job, and they just sit in silence. And I want to end this week just with this point because, you know, it's really the best thing that they did in the whole book. And it's the best thing we can do. When we have a friend, we have someone suffering. Just sit with them in silence. Don't try to sermonize. Don't try to explain God. Don't try. Just say, I'm sorry. And then just be a friend. Cry with them. Wrap your arms around them. It's the best comfort that you can be. And that's when his friends were really at their best. But after that, they start talking. And that's when the story goes downhill. The conversation is just not hitting the nail on the head. They're actually just wrong. And so we'll talk about it more next week. But that's the setup and the introduction to the beginning of the story of Job that you'll be reading this week. So... That wraps it up a few minutes early this week, but I want you to enjoy your reading and be ready. Come back next week when we're going to talk about how God speaks, because at the end of Job, God speaks, and it's amazing. So enjoy your reading this week, and until next week, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.